Lucy was a 1991 Ford Mustang GT named after my grandmother, once belonging to my granddaddy. Had a whole bunch of modifications under the hood. Had a good Canaan filter system. Uh, my dad had put uh, Magnaflows on it and had a whole bunch of other stuff like Toyo racing tires. I mean, this, a stock 91 GT could go about 145 miles an hour, but we had never run a dyno sheet on Lucy, this Mustang. So we never knew exactly how fast she could go. I was 18 years old and I was driving home to my parents' house and it was late at night and I had this mile long open stretch without anybody in sight. And I just felt this overwhelming urge to go as fast as I could and finally top this car out. I, it, the, the sensation was like, if I don't do this, I'm going to die. Now, looking back, I realized that's actually perfectly backwards. <laughs> but at the time, that was the sensation that nearly overwhelmed me. I've got to do this or I'm going to die. And so I floored it and V8 roared to life Speedometer very quickly rose up to 90 miles an hour, 100, 120, began to slow down. It hit 150 miles an hour. And the fence posts in the flying field next to me, the same flying field I ran through and wrote Romans 10:9 with a jogging app, same exact flying field over a mile, from my house, uh, mile away from my, my house. Suddenly the speedometer started just waving at me and the car started shaking. I didn't wave back at the speedometer and I realized I'd peaked my car. I'd capped it out. And so I didn't want to blow a gasket. And so I just let it coast. And it coasted for over a mile. And I turned at the light, let out this sigh. I mean, as a teenager, you're just raging with hormones. And so like pure oxygenated testosterone just uh, came out. I felt like I had done what I wanted to do. And then I just kind of coasted and it was late. I didn't want to wake my parents up. So I let Lucy in her typical low rumbling V8 growl sort of coast onto the parking pad and I just softly shut the door and crept up onto the porch. And as I was sneaking in the back door, I saw my six foot something colossal Sasquatch of a dad just standing in the middle of the living room in the dark. And clearing his throat, as he always does, before dispensing wisdom, he said, this deep baritone with an eerie calmness to it. You know, these roads used to be dirt. And on a straightaway, sometimes I would dump the four-barrel carburetor in my demon. He had the original Dodge Demon. But you never know when a deer could jump out of the woods. Paused, just turned, slowly went back to his room. I had just been shown grace. I didn't know how he knew. I was over a mile away from the house when I did this, but somehow he just knew. And I also knew that if I did something like that again, he would somehow just know it and there wouldn't be as much grace the next time. There would be consequences I could lose lose Lucy. I also knew that doing something so foolish, I could, I could die. I mean, doing that outside of a controlled environment, you could, you could be killed. But my dad knew my nature. Like he said, he faced the same 
temptation that I faced. And he met me there in my mistake with an outpouring of grace. We didn't actually talk about this until recently. I mean, just like three weeks ago when I was in Florida speaking, I finally brought it up and I saw Lucy sitting there getting ready to be upgraded again, even, even today. My dad has plans to keep working on Lucy. And I, I asked, how did you know? And he, he looked at me and he did that. Even though his hearing wasn't the best in the world, even across a flying field and through some woods and in his window, he knew the sound of a five liter V8 with Magnaflow exhaust. He knew exactly who that was <laughs> over a mile from the house. He knew my nature. He faced the same temptations, but he met me with an outpouring of grace. He was playing the long game with me. He used cars often to disciple me. I'm so grateful for it. I'm grateful for the grace. And I knew, I knew that if I had despised that grace, that I'd be met with fair discipline. Likewise, God, he's got grace for you, okay? Don't despise that grace and consider it license to continue in sin. Don't take advantage of that grace and consider it permission to just keep on going like God's okay with that sin. God will allow you to suffer consequences for your sin, my friend. He will discipline you if you are his child. So don't despise the grace. Don't turn it into license to sin. It is grace from a loving father who's been tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin, according to Hebrews 4. And right there in our mistakes, he meets us with an outpouring of grace. Let's look at Romans chapter three. Verse 21 through 26 is one giant sentence in the original Greek I know that we've covered this already and I know that it's in the Explore the Bible content that you and your small group are gonna cover online, but I wanna build a bridge from this to Romans 6. I wanna give more detail to the context around this all-important verse, Romans 3.23, about how all of us have sinned. My dad had this line when he was discipling me. He would say, Jess, every red-blooded American boy struggles with that. Now, deeply patriotic though we were, it wasn't just American boys who struggled with that. What was he saying? It was an appeal to nature. By your nature, because of your blood, because of who you are and the sin nature that we were all born with, you're struggling with this. My, my atheist friend, can we level about something for a minute? All moral arguments ultimately come from the spiritual. You cannot logically have both morality and atheism. The two are utterly incongruous, one with the other. So would you face this for a moment? The instrument by which you gauge morality, the sensory faculties by which you understand right from wrong are flawed. They're sin-stained, just like mine. You can't actually trust your neutrality on matters of morality because just like me, you were born with a sin nature. Now, Christians, would you consider this likewise? If Romans 3 is true, and it is, your skeptical friends who are far from God, who make moral, moral judgments, pretending to be neutral, pretending to be objective, aren't. Like Dr. Greg Bonson taught, they're not neutral, so you shouldn't be either. As a Christian, you stand upon the ultimate authority for all worldviews. You actually have found the truth, and it's truth with the capital T, Jesus. 
So don't give them the objective neutral high ground when discussing matters of morality. Rather, introduce them to the high ground. Stand upon this and don't sacrifice this. Don't put this behind your back when engaging somebody on matters of morality because then it's just two sinners talking about holiness. Instead, introduce the holy one into the discussion and let them either believe or disbelieve. They're not neutral. My atheist friend, you're not actually neutral on this. You cannot trust your own innate moral judgments because like my instruments, they're stained with sin. Look at Romans chapter three, beginning in verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. What does he mean by the law and the prophets? I believe this is, a, this is summing up the Old Testament. The law is Genesis through Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets could be Isaiah through Malachi. In the law, God establishes the consequences for sin. In the prophets, he talks about what he's gonna do to the nation of Israel. And by the way, he's done a lot of that. And then he talks about what he's gonna do through the Messiah. And the Messiah has come, that's Jesus. There are also prophecies in the Old Testament that even describe the end of days what God's going to do from our perspective still. So to say that all the law and the prophets align with this righteousness of God that he has provided says that this new form of righteousness that we understand today as New Testament believers is a fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Jesus once was confronted by some scribes and Pharisees. They liked to set little traps for him. And he was so brilliant in the way that he would, he, in the way that he would answer them. They came to him trying to ask him which law was the greatest. And it was a trap. In Matthew 22, verse 37, he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second, uh, this is the greatest and the most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So the whole Old Testament is summarized in Jesus. He gives the greatest command and this happens to be the way that we are righteous today. If we truly do love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so naturally you're gonna love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets are summed up in this, the day that you stop scrolling on social media and you stop right here and you pray God's word out to God, filled with the spirit of God, joined alongside the people of God and the church of God that is scattered in the houses that belong to the kingdom of God. The law and the prophets all are summed up in the greatest commandment that Jesus gives in Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the foundation upon which this New Testament righteousness sits. That when you believe in Jesus, you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're saved, you're righteous. Though sinful, you're now made righteous. All the law and the prophets are the foundation upon which this righteousness is built. Look at the next verse with me. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This is the righteousness of God. Aren't you grateful that it's done apart from the law, meaning because we couldn't earn it through our obedience to the law, it's done through Jesus Christ. This is the righteousness of God. It's through faith in Jesus. Now, the final words are important since there is no distinction. Why is that there? Verse 22 is the penultimate verse before one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, a verse that I use at the end of every one of my sermons. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
So this is the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. So what is that word distinction doing there in verse 22? Well, the original intent of Romans 3 was to show that even though Jews had adhered to the law, they were just as sinful as Gentiles for all have sinned. There's no distinction. To say that there's no distinction is to say that Jews are just as sinful as Gentiles by our nature. It's like saying everybody with the last name of Hickenbottom has sinned. Also, everybody with the last name other than Hickenbottom has sinned. So whether you are a Hickenbottom or a non-Hickenbottom, we've all sinned. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you see? The original intent was to show that Jews and Gentiles alike both need a savior. We both need a Messiah. And this was gonna take Jews who were priding themselves on their adherence to the law, is gonna take them down a notch. And it doesn't actually say something so uplifting about Gentiles either. We've all sinned, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even good people struggle with sin, something we're born with. All right, look at, look at Romans 3.23 coupled with Romans 6.23. There's a reason that I use these two verses in immediate conjunction with one another when I share the gospel. It's a common stat that's given that says, if you are a good person, you'll go to heaven. That's a common response given in surveys. How do you know you'll go to heaven when you die? People who say either, uh, some people say, I don't know. Others will answer, I believe because I'm a good person, God will let me go to heaven. But according to this teaching, We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When you couple Romans 3.23 with Romans 6.23, the news sounds terrible in the first half of the sentence. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Every one of us has sinned and the wages of our sin, what you get in return for your sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Romans 6.23 teaches about death, it's not just talking about physical death. This is a spiritual death. It's eternity in hell apart from God. That's what every one of us gets in return for our sin. Your wages are what you deserve. And what we deserve because of our sin, which we all have according to 3.23, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23, which we teach in their full context, speak to the condition of our souls before God. We've all sinned, every last one of us. And what we get in return for that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now look at verse 24. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There are two words I wanna emphasize here. One is justified, the other one is freely. The word justified appears over 30 times in this book especially in chapter two to chapter five. And it's a forensic term. To be justified before God means to be declared righteous. Obviously you can see the word justice built into justified. And when there's a sense of justice, there's a judge, that's God. Though we are guilty, though we are sinful, though we've all fallen short of the glory of God, we sinners may be justified before God freely. How? By his grace. To stand before the judge justified, though you're guilty, means you've received grace, grace upon grace. The word freely is especially important here. 
Some of you may have thought that you could do good works to outweigh your past sins. Some of you have been influenced by the, the teaching of karma, for example. But this says that we are justified freely by the grace of God. By the teaching of karma, the bad things that you do could come back around. And that sounds like a decent morality until somebody that you really love loses their daughter to cancer. It comes from a circular view of time, which is common in Eastern thought, as opposed to the more realistic linear nature of time. Within karma, the idea is that you could do something bad in a past life and it could come out of nowhere and just blindside you. But according to a linear nature of time, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though you have committed sins, you could be justified freely by God's grace. And freely, freely means free not something that you've earned. Look at, look at Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse three. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Not one of us can boast about our righteousness. We're saved by grace alone. We're justified freely by the grace of God, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Today, I no longer have Lucy. I gave Lucy back to my parents in 2010 before Austin was born. Now I have Lucille, which is more sophisticated, but still named after my speed demon grandmother. <laughs> it was such a cool moment when my parents first visited Seattle and I could safely, responsibly enjoy my car with my dad. I remember the lessons that he taught me between turns of the wrench and the ratchet working under the hood of the, the old K5 blazer or Lucy, discipling me, coaching me, teaching me, playing the long game. He knew my nature. He'd faced the same temptations when he was my age. And he showed me grace where I made mistakes. Thank you, dad, I love you. It was such a blessing to take him there, especially knowing all the grace that he had shown me before in years past. This verse about God overlooking sins previously committed and its original intent speaks to God's grace upon the whole Old Testament, meaning it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats sacrificed in the Old Testament era to take away sin. They, they weren't actually atoned for in their sin by the sacrifices they made. Rather, their sacrifices, their adherence to the law demonstrated their faith in the Messiah to come, the sacrifice to come. And so God overlooks the sins previously committed Old Testament Jews were saved by their faith in the Messiah to come. And now today, New Testament believers are saved by our belief in the Messiah who has come and who is coming again. Romans 10, 9 says, 
if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Think on what this verse indicates about the patience of God, that he would overlook an entire testament's worth of sins. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everybody to come to the knowledge of the Savior. In his kindness, he's leading you toward repentance from sin. My dad reminds me of my heavenly father in that regard. He's showing you grace in your sin right now. If you've been spared the consequences of your sin in an earthly sense, and especially if you haven't been spared the consequences of your sin in an earthly sense, and if God hasn't brought down the full hammer of weight for your sin upon you in an earthly sense just yet, would you seize the grace, abide in it, thank him for it, walk in repentance, and then bring others into the same grace that you have found? He God our Father justifies freely sinners like you and I. He has overlooked an entire generation's worth of sins to atone for them upon the cross. And now we are saved by the same Messiah. He overlooked the sins previously committed because he knew his redemptive plan was coming in the long game. He overlooked the sins previously committed. Look at verse 26. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Look at Romans chapter six with me. I wanna take this teaching from Romans chapter three and I wanna show you how beautifully contiguous this thought runs from chapter three all the way through chapter six. Chapter six is best appreciated when we remember chapter three. So as we continue in our reading plan together and our small groups that meet online and now in these sermons together, I want you to see this theme of our innate sinfulness in chapter three and then the grace and the resurrection that comes to the rest of Romans. What then? 6.15. Should we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Right, Jesse, your dad let you slide once for speeding. Does that mean you should keep on speeding? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one that you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God, although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over and have been set free from sin you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification, meaning you become more like God. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit produced then from the things that you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death, What do you have to show for your sin? Death. What happens when you drive 150 miles an hour where there are deer present? You could die. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We, by our nature, are sinful, but God, by his nature, is gracious to you. If the Holy Spirit of God is working upon your heart, you see this text and you know that it's absolutely true, then you have been met by a gracious father who's caught you in your sin 
Nobody else was around when you did it, but he knows all about it. And he loves you. While walking the earth as Jesus, he was tempted in every way that we are. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have existed for all time. He knows everything. He knows what it's like to face temptation because Jesus was tempted. Yet he was without sin. He knows your nature. He knows your temptations and he's meeting you with grace right this moment. As the Holy Spirit of God draws upon your heart, I want you to pray God's word out to God with me. Give your life to Jesus and close your laptop a transformed person. Members of Highlands Community Church, I want you to go through these verses with me. Say them out loud as a family so that you likewise can be prepared to invite somebody else into the hope that we all have. Let's, let's pray to God, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. Do you believe that, my skeptical friend? You feel the Holy Spirit of God washing over you, convincing you of that? You know that it's true. This is the day that you are saved. Would you confess that this text is true? That you, like me, that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? And would you confess your belief in Romans 6 that the wages of that sin, what you get in return for that sin is death, is hell, is separation from God. Fair treatment for your sin is hell, but instead the gift of God given freely by God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is a commitment to Jesus and Jesus alone. Would you tell him you believe that he alone, according to John 14, 6, is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through him. And then together, I want us to profess what verse, Highlands Community Church? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. According to 1 Corinthians 12, you can't actually say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit of God, which means that if you are compelled right now, my formerly skeptical friend, to pray this prayer with me, to give your life to Jesus, that there's nothing short of a miracle of the Holy Spirit of God happening right there with you right now. So seize the moment, pray God's word to God. This is the day that you are saved, my friend. Let's go before him. Pray it with me, Highlands Community Church. God, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. God, I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I confess that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, that you are the way and the truth and the life. And there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, my own home, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Would you say Jesus is Lord out loud right now? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.